Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Oh, I can understand your wish that there had been a war. Your need to indulge some pathetic fantasy about brave Bajoran soldiers marching to honorable defeat. But in fact, Major, you and I know there was no war, no glory. Bajor didn't resist. It surrendered. The Bajorans were peaceful people before you came. We offered no threat to you. We could never understand why you had to be so brutal. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Positively Trek Book Club with your hosts, Dan Gunther, that's me, and Bruce Gibson. Bruce, are you ready to talk Star Trek books today? Yes, I'm ready to talk Star Trek books. I'm always ready to talk about Star Trek books. And I have to say that I always enjoy going online and seeing what people are reading. So I was just earlier just going through different Facebook feeds and the different book groups that are out there and just seeing like, oh yeah, I've read that book. Oh yeah, that's a good one. Oh, I still need to read that one. And just seeing what everybody's reading out there. That's a lot of fun. I like the way you put that because this is one, the book that we're going to be talking about today is Star Trek Terok Nor. Day of the Vipers. It's book one of three, and it's advertised as a saga of the Lost Era. So, you know, we've been covering the Lost Era novels. This one is a little bit of a a kind of subset of that, but it's still considered under that umbrella. And this is one that I've seen popping up from time to time on people's reading lists. So, you know, this came out quite a while ago, but people are still reading it and checking it out. And I'm really glad we're going to be talking about it on this episode. Yeah, I never read this book. I never read this series, these three books. So I've, it's, of course, been on my list of something that I want to read. And now I've started. So it's great. And I don't think I realized for the longest time that was part of the Lost Era. It was sometime later that I realized that these books were part of that. Because I was thinking, oh, yeah, I think we finished reading the Lost Era. And it's like, oh, yeah. And then there's these three. Yeah, and basically mostly because it just takes place during that period. And Deep Space Nine is a series that has such a rich history behind it, like a lot of events that take place before the series that set that series up, you know, and a lot of it untold, right? So this one really digs into that, and I'm really, really excited to read these. Now, I have read them before. This would actually be my third time reading this novel. All three of these novels, I should say. And we will get, of course, to the other two in later episodes as well. So, yeah, the first part of this episode, we're going to do things a little bit differently this week. We're going to do kind of a spoiler-free talk about it. We're going to give our kind of thoughts, our recommendations, should you pick up this novel and read it if you haven't already. And then after the break, we'll get into the spoiler discussion of the novel. So if you've not read this novel yet, feel free to listen until you hear us kind of give the spoiler warning. You're safe. We won't be spoiling too much about it until then. So yeah, first of all, the back cover blurb 
I find really interesting for this one because, it, well, I'll just read it here. It says, A seemingly benign visitation to the bountiful world of Bajor from the resource-poor Cardassian Union is viewed with cautious optimism by some, trepidation by others, and a calculating gleam by unscrupulous opportunists. What begins as a gesture of compassion soon becomes something very different. Seen through the eyes of participants on both sides, including those of a young officer named Scrain Ducat, the personal, political, and religious tensions between the Bajorans and the Cardassians quickly spiral out of control, irrevocably shaping the futures of both worlds in an emotionally charged and unforgettable tale of treachery, tragedy, and hope. Mm, I hope that we enjoyed this book. I hope so too. So yeah, like I said, you know, Deep Space Nine has this rich history, has all of this kind of stuff that leads into the series. And throughout the course of the series, we see a lot of flashbacks and tales from during the occupation. But this novel really mostly takes place before the actual occupation of Bajor by Cardassia, which is something that's really not explored much in Star Trek, at least in canon Star Trek. So first of all, what I want to say is like just the the kind of look into this period of history that we've never really gotten before was really, really enjoyable. Yeah, it just starts off in a way so innocent. It's not this thing where all of a sudden the Cardassians come and just invade Bajor and you know just take it over and it's like this big war. It just starts off very innocently it's like the cardassians are in desperate need and they want to be friends with the bajorans or so we think and of course we'll get into it but i like how it kind of builds up to the occupation moment Mm -hmm. it's kind of that that parable of the frog in the pot of boiling water right you know you don't really realize what's happening if you just slowly ratchet up the temperature and 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 of course you rescue the frog because that's cruel if you don't so you know just just to set everyone's mind at ease there yeah this (laughs) book is a frog rescue but yeah i really really enjoyed that aspect of it and getting a look at that and the kind of dramatic irony that goes along with the reader knowing so much about how this all turns out and the characters in the book not. And that kind of dread that you have for the futures of all of these people that you're reading about. And they have no idea what's coming. You know, this is a prequel done right. Like, this is so well done. And I was thinking as I was reading it about anybody that just enjoys Star Trek but may not be a big Star Trek fan. And when this book was in a store, if somebody walked by and said, oh, a Star Trek novel, I wouldn't mind reading it. They might get into this novel and just start saying, well, wait, there's no Starfleet. There's no starships. There's no captains and crew. And all that. And I just wonder if somebody who's looking for that in Star Trek, but gets into this book, if they would enjoy it or not. I mean, you would think that they would enjoy the story, but would they be disappointed that it doesn't have that, you know, Star Trek element of a starship and Starfleet in it, you know? And I was just wondering that at the time, because you really have to be into this lore to really appreciate and, and be interested in this. But the story can be strong enough that, somebody who's not expecting it could really find themselves interested. Yeah. And I I had similar thoughts reading this as well, because as you kind of allude to there, it's definitely not your typical Star Trek novel. And I, I wonder along with you, if a casual Star Trek fan or someone who's kind of a little bit into Star Trek 
might find themselves really lost with this. Now, if you're a Deep Space Nine fan and you've watched that series, I think you'll get into this novel right away and be excited to kind of get that backstory if you're really into that story of Deep Space Nine and Bajor and and all of that. Because I had this thought while I was reading this, and I never really considered this before, but with the exception of Earth, I honestly think that Bajor at this point is probably the most explored planet story-wise in Star Trek history. And I mean, like, even if you consider some of the big players like Vulcan and Kronos, we haven't spent as much time on those planets as we have on Bajor in Deep Space Nine. Like, it's, it still amazes me these many years later that Deep Space Nine got approved and made because it, it feels like if you just give the brief of the series, it's like, yeah, you're set on this planet that, you know, oh, we mentioned once in a previous episode, Ensign Rowe in TNG, and uh, they're just emerging from an occupation by the Cardassians, and, and it's going to be a lot about the politics of this planet and and the, the spirituality of these people and how they cope with the end of this occupation and stuff. Like, on paper, it seems kind of strange. Like, we're going to spend so much time focusing on that. And over the course of seven seasons of Deep Space Nine, we really get a lot of Bajor. And this novel digs even deeper into the planet and its people. And I got to say, as a huge Deep Space Nine fan, I'm here for it. I'm really enjoying that. I'm thinking back to the day when this series premiered. And you're right. It is kind of surprising that it was greenlit because TNG was on this huge high. And yeah, Paramount's like, let's take advantage of that and do another series. There's room for a second one airing on, you know, at the same time. But you would think that the executives there would be like, wait, what are you doing? A space? It's not even a Federation Starfleet space station. And it's going to be just around this one planet. And what, you know, <laughs> where's the starship? Where's the captain? It's like I was saying about this novel. And it is surprising that they were allowed to do it. it. It's almost as if the Paramount people were just like, hey, do do whatever. I mean, you guys had success on TNG. Just, you know, let, let's see how it goes. Do whatever you want to do. Because it, it is very surprising. Because they didn't think that way going into UPN when they created Voyager. They wanted it mm -hmm. more like TNG. And so it is kind of interesting that that uh, proved out to be the series that it came out to be like yeah and i honestly thank whatever fates whatever stars aligned that day to make that series happen because it is some of my absolute favorite star trek out there so you can imagine that this book gets a hearty recommend from me so if you've not read this uh, if you haven't picked this up if you are a deep space nine fan this is, I think, a must-read, personally. And James Swallow, it should be said, the author, this is his first full-length Star Trek novel. He had written some short stories, but this was his first novel in the Star Trek, uh, I want to say canon, but it's not canon. That's not what I mean. You know what I mean. <laughs> in the Star Trek fiction canon book canon or whatever. Yeah. I didn't realize this was his first. So Bruce, I have to ask, does this get a recommend from you? Well, yeah, I, it does. Well, for the reasons you said earlier, if you're into deep space nine and you want to know more of the history of the Cardassians and the Bajorans and their whole relationship and how it built to the occupation, I think this is definitely a must read. Uh, if you're not into deep space nine, 
I think it would still be a good read. I think, you know, it's very Star Trek, but it doesn't involve starships and stuff like we were saying. But it's it's an interesting story. And I'm curious to see how books two and three play out. But yeah, I would I would recommend this to a Star Trek fan. Excellent. Well, there you go. So, dear listener, if you've not read this, go out, read it, and then come back and listen to the rest of the show if you're worried about spoilers. If you're not worried about spoilers, by all means, listen on. And uh, yeah, we're going to get into spoilers for Day of the Vipers right after this. Thank you to you, our listeners, for supporting Positively Trek and to especially our patrons on Patreon. If you would like to contribute to Positively Trek and be a patron on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash positively trek. You'll get perks like early access to episodes and bonus content. And for those who are in the higher levels, you get shout outs and associate producer credits and much more. And speaking of shout outs, let's give a shout out to Carl Morris, Joyce Marin, Jim Stoffel, Dave Garcia, Rick Young, Paul D. Kinnear, and John Blaber. Thank you all for your support. Now let's go back to the show. So, Terok Nor, Day of the Vipers, this takes place, like we said, during the Lost Era, between the years 2318 and 2328. So this is basically the 10 years right before the official start of the Cardassian occupation of Bajor. And we're introduced to a number of characters that this story is told through. I'd say the main character, pretty much the main character in quote marks, I'd say is Dara Mace, who's this constable at the start of this novel in the Cordo City Watch. So think like Odo's constables on Deep Space Nine, right? The brown kind of tan Bajor security uniform. And he's part of the the Cordo City Watch, this, this city on... Bajor, the kind of police force of this city. So what did you think of this character and kind of seeing life on Bajor at this time through his eyes? Well, I will say he was my favorite character of the book. I don't know why, I just really liked him a lot. Every time I would turn a chapter and it would start off with him, I'm like, oh good, I like this guy. And the Constable Odo thing, like you said, the uniform, it was just interesting to think that this character is a constable like Odo was, you know, but at this earlier time. And I I really liked seeing how he was just this almost like this normal guy, a policeman type person and such, and then having to deal with his family and balancing that with his work. I mean, it was a typical situation that a police officer or an investigator or a detective or whatever would have to deal with. And so it was relatable. The character was very relatable to, to me. Yeah, he's definitely an everyman character, right? Like, kind of like a Chief O'Brien character, one that the audience can very easily relate to and kind of inhabit the shoes of. And yeah, I really enjoyed seeing him dealing with like the local crime element and and just the day-to-day life, even the stuff with him and his family when it's going rocky and stuff, like it you know, it's it's typical, right? Like things happen, people have these issues and stuff. It felt very real to me. So I really liked seeing things through his eyes. And and like you, he was one of my favorite characters as well. I enjoyed seeing him interact with everything that was going on and getting his perspective on kind of the big events happening. I like you just said interact because I was going to say I like how he interacted with the, the other characters too. 
You know, I always thought mm-hmm. he had a good interaction with the different characters because each of the characters, of course, are different. And so his relationships with the characters are different, but his interactions were always interesting to me. I should say, though, before we get to Dara Mason, kind of the main the main story, we do get this little prologue, which is kind of a, a scene from towards the end of the book that we later, when we get there, we get some different perspective on which is really interesting but you know we get the impression this is like right at the outbreak of the occupation there's this cardassian named benick who is a member of the aurelian way faith of cardassians and he's on bajor and he's out of sorts and he's you know trying to escape this mob that seems to be chasing him or something and seeking refuge from this vedic named Gar Osen in this uh, in the one of the shrines on Bajor or something like that and uh, this was an interesting way to kind of hook us into the story and, and grab our attention you know jumping towards the end of the novel the extra little bit of information that we get about that which we'll get to really had me flipping back to this scene and going like wait oh wow because what's happening in that scene is not at all what you think is happening in that scene. I thought that was a really fascinating way to open the book. I I love the opening of this book. I wish I would have gone back and reread it, like you were just saying, after reading the whole novel, because it was it was very gripping. There's a lot of things going on where, you know, there's unrest and, and the cities are burning and such, and, you know, there's this temple, and, you know, I'm, I'm worried about this guy, Gar- Osin and what's going to happen to him and well my now my opinions kind of changed on that <laughs> yeah and we'll get to that for sure as as to why but yeah that, that's one thing in this novel and and we said kind of at the beginning it's not your typical star trek novel i'd say 90 percent of the characters half the characters in here are people we've never heard of and 90 percent of them are not any that got, have gotten much screen time at all. I think James Swallow has an interesting job here. When when writers, and I'm not diminishing the work of tie-in writers whatsoever. It's, it's a craft that obviously I'm huge into. We wouldn't be doing this show if it were otherwise. But you generally have kind of a bunch of characters that you have laid out and you, you use them in your stories and, and manipulate them in certain ways. But James here is having to create a lot of these characters and populate the story with it, which, you know, I I think works really well, especially when you're putting them into an established universe with an established history like Star Trek. I I think it works really well here. And these characters just there's not one character in here that didn't feel real to me, whether there's someone we've seen before or someone that was created out of whole cloth for this novel. Well, I also noticed at the beginning of the book, he has a list of the characters and and who they are, which I Mm -hmm. didn't turn to very often. I was able to remember which characters were which, but sometimes I would early on confuse maybe two Cardassians with each other or two Bajoran priests with each other. Like, wait, who's, wait, wait. oh no, that was the other priest, like that, but I didn't really need to go back and read that. The thing about the names is I don't do this often enough and I should, especially if I'm doing a podcast, but if I'm reading a name in a book like this, I don't always go back and look to see somewhere on memory alpha. If that's a character that was in a previous episode of something, you know, I usually Mm -hmm. just go, I see a name and I think, 
oh, I wonder if that was ever, if that character's from an episode that was mentioned or shown briefly. I don't know. And I don't always go and look, but then you educate me on that later when we get on the podcast. <laughs> so that helps a lot. Yeah, we do have quite a few, not, not a lot. I shouldn't say quite a few. We do have a few characters that we've seen before uh, that are greatly expanded for the novel. So uh, going way back to the TNG episode Ensign Row is where we get the characters of Jazz Holza and Keeve Falor. They're both mentioned in that episode, and Keeve Falor we do meet in that episode as well. And Jazz Holza is an interesting one here. He's a member of the Bajoran Chamber of Ministers representing the Korto district, which is where a lot of the action in the novel is set. And in the TNG episode Ensign Row, he was someone who was on the Valo 2 colony that Picard and the Enterprise were going to meet up with to discuss the Bajoran terrorist situation. And he's described in that episode as kind of an ineffectual leader who's kind of lost touch with the people around him and puts on a good show of being an important person, but really has no influence. And we see the journey of that character through this book, because at the start of the book, he is kind of a man of the people and has a lot of influence and is a well-regarded leader. And by the end, he becomes that man that's described in that episode, Ensign Rose, just kind of beaten and ineffectual and not really of any importance whatsoever. Yeah, because he doesn't really have control of what's been going on. I mean, none of these people really know what they're getting themselves into. You know, and they don't know what's going to happen with the Cardassians and they just kind of welcome them with open arms and hope to maybe profit from it or whatever, gain fame from it, whatever it is that they're looking to get from it. And it's not going to play out the way they think. And so that's going to change you, you know, that's going to change these people in, in a different way. And uh, he was interesting because of that. It was interesting to see him move in that direction. And then kind of the, the flip side of that is Keeve Falor, who is also in Ensign Row, and he's someone that's very much opposed to what's going on with the Cardassians, because uh, we'll, we'll kind of get to what's going on, but the Cardassians are making overtures to get closer to Bajor, and this Keeve Falor guy is very much opposed to it from the beginning, and by the end, he leaves Bajor, and we see him on Valo 2 in that episode, Ensign Row, and he's very much more the Bajoran who actually represents the Bajoran's interests. And Ensign Row recommends that they they talk to him because he really knows what's what. Oh man, see, I didn't remember that he was in Ensign Row. Now I want to go watch that because <laughs> I do like that episode. That uh, I, Ensign Row's a favorite TNG character of mine. So. Oh, me too. Yeah. Michelle Forbes kills it as that character, which reminds me, and I kind of wanted to do this at the beginning of the episode, but I forgot. So I'm going to mention it here. Recommended viewing. Something that I want to kind of bring into the book club episodes. Episodes of Star Trek that would enhance enjoyment of a particular novel. So recommended viewing for this novel, I would say Ensign Row from season five of TNG for sure. And also The Collaborator from season two of Deep Space Nine. Uh, and that episode introduces us to the character of Kubus Oak, who is yet another member of the Bajoran Chamber of Ministers. He represents the Quial district. And we get a lot of him in this novel. He really ends up being one of the big architects of 
the Cardassian presence on Bajor. He's very interested in off-world commerce and has made a lot of trade deals with Cardassians. And he kind of paves the way for letting the Cardassians in to kind of increase trade and, and relationships with Bajor. So he's he's someone that really features highly. And we see him in that Deep Space Nine episode, The Collaborator. Yeah, it was him and Jazz I kept confusing early on with each other. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, see, I'm glad you're making these call-outs because, see, I hate this because now I want to go back and watch that episode too. Yeah, and it's it's a good one. It's It's one that delves a bit into what happens during the occupation and some of the crimes that were committed and is a, is a little bit of a preview of what this character is going to go through from this point on into the occupation, he's known after the occupation as Secretary Kubis, who is the head of the Bajoran government, the Bajoran occupational government during the reign of the Cardassians, and is seen as a collaborator with the Cardassians who betrayed his people. That's kind of his legacy in the show of Deep Space Nine. So we see the beginnings of that here. And we'll, I'm sure, see that play out in the next two novels as well. See, this reminds me of when I first started reading Star Trek novels because I hadn't watched all of Star Trek. And this is in the early 90s. So you only had the original series and TNG in the movies. But you know, I would read a book and then later I'd see a Star Trek episode. And then I realized, oh, those characters or that situation is what was in this book. And so the episode felt like a sequel to me or a prequel to the book, you know? And now, I mean, even though I've seen these episodes and some of them have been a while, I think when I get through the trilogy of books, I'll go back and watch these and they'll feel like sequels to the books. I mean, it's almost a mm -hmm. gift to the author that you have these older Bajoran characters that you could put in this time period and make this story that involves all of them. You can tell, too, that James Swallow has really done the research and, and dug up some of these characters and put them in really interesting positions and stuff. Yeah, and it makes me think he's actually seen Star Trek. I, I feel like it, yeah. yeah. I feel like maybe he's kind of into this whole Star Trek thing, yeah. Yeah, that helps. <laughs> Definitely. But uh, yeah, I, I'm really digging this. And of course, uh, other characters that we do see that are from later Deep Space Nine, more kind of minor ones. Although actually, Kotan Padar isn't the most minor character in this novel. He has a bit of a big role, but we saw him in the Deep Space Nine season two episode, Cardassians. That's the one where there's a Bajoran boy being raised sorry, a Cardassian boy being raised by Bajoran parents. That boy turns out to be the son of Kotan Padar, who in this novel is a scientist uh, who's kind of assigned to this group that's making contact with Bajor. And also from that same episode, a very minor character in this novel is Proka Migdal, the kind of deputy to Dara Mace. And he's the Bajoran foster father of that kid in that episode so oh wow double whammy there yeah a little bit of interesting crossovers there so i should definitely add uh that season two episode of deep space nine cardassians to the recommended viewing for this for this novel absolutely yes so let's get into the story a little bit. So like I said, the Cardassians are trying to establish closer ties to Bajor and they've basically found and I'm putting in quote marks found uh, the wreckage of this Bajoran ship, and they're using the pretense of returning the bodies 
from this ship that's that's encountered some sort of disaster. I, I don't know how that happened. It's just, we just found it. I don't know. And returning them to Bajor, making kind of formal contact with the government. I had my suspicions very early on that they didn't just happen upon this ship and recover the bodies and stuff. It's pretty heavily intimated later on that the Cardassians made this happen. The military set this in motion by making sure this Bajoran crew met a bad end so that they would have an in to be able to to make contact with Bajor. So right away, we're seeing the kind of sneaky machinations of the Cardassian government, or at least the military part of the government, I should say. Yeah, but it's like when I was reading that, I wasn't too sure. I thought maybe, but yeah. I also thought it was maybe trying to lead us to believe that we should always be, you know, we're, we're already suspicious of Cardassians. So why not write it that way? So you're suspicious about them and then find out maybe they had nothing to do with that. And you're like, Oh, well maybe they weren't always this way or whatever. But of course later we find out they are, but it's, it just came across again earlier is, as I mentioned, something like they're just innocently, it seems like they're innocently approaching Bajor, but we also come to find out that that's because not all the Cardassians are on the same agenda. Like mm-hmm. some are there innocently and for religious reasons and want to bond with the Bajoran religion and such. And then there's the other side of things that see an opportunity because things aren't always great on Cardassia and there are the riches here on Bajor that they could take advantage of. And so it kind of builds that, like you're saying, boiling that water, you know, and that poor little frog. Yeah. And I'm really glad you brought that up because that's something I wanted to talk about for sure was the Cardassians in this novel are not a monolithic entity here. We have the military and their agenda basically is we need to secure resources and space for Cardassia, right? We need to conquer in the name of Cardassia to make our people strong. And we have the scientists who are, you know, in service of Cardassia, but they don't have that same mindset that the military has. And then, of course, the Aurelians, the religious people that are on this mission as well, are very much more altruistic. And as they learn more about the Bajoran faith, they start to come to believe that they are actually like twin parts of the same faith that have split off at some point somehow. And, you know, they want to have closer ties to Bajor because of that. So yeah, there's a lot going on. And I really love that it's not just that all the Cardassians are evil and they're all preying upon these poor, innocent, naive Bajorans. You know, there are some Cardassians that are very much out to to do everything they can for Cardassia and exploit the situation, but there are ones that aren't and are more innocent in all of this. And then same on the Bajoran side. You know, there are the Bajorans that are completely victimized and just have their whole way of life uprooted, but there are also Bajorans that are seeking to take advantage of the situation as much as they can and come out on top. Kubus Oak, for one, is kind of the big obvious one, but there are others as well who just see the kind of opportunistic side of this. So I really love that it's not all black and white. It's it, they're people, you know, but that's the way life is. That's the way reality is. They're people. 
Yeah, you have the dark side and the light side of the force, and there's that gray area. Oh, well, anyway, that's a whole other thing. Uh, <laughs> or maybe there's not a gray area. But yeah, that's the thing that I really enjoyed it, too, because it wasn't just the bad Cardassians and the good Bajorans or something. It was, you have good and bad on both sides. You know, it's not one side is bad and the other one's good. You have it on both sides. Everybody is different and everybody has their own agenda. And just because you're part of one group doesn't mean you're on the same page and the same agenda as everyone else in that group. And just to see how the Cardassian military uses their own people, the religious people, the innocent people going into this and them not knowing what's happening. And then that group of religious Cardassians, like you're saying, taking on and seeing the similarities with the Bajoran religion and, and vice versa with the Bajoran religious leaders, seeing the Cardassian religion, the parallels to that. And that, you know, Cardassians are talking about the prophets, you know, it's like they believe mm -hmm. in the prophets now and, and they're kind of acclimating themselves into this religion that was very interesting to me. Like, I could have taken a whole book on that. Well, actually, we don't need a whole book on that because we get a good amount of that in here that's satisfying to me while we're seeing what's happening on the other side of stuff. But it was interesting. The other aspect of this that I really like is just where Bajor and Cardassia are as societies at this point as well. So Bajor, it's been said that, I think in TNG, Picard says they had... Uh, amazing architecture and art before humans could even fully stand erect. So they're a very ancient civilization that's existed for a long time. And they have this planet that provides them with pretty much everything they need. They have lots of food, lots of natural beauty and, and all of this stuff. It provides for its people. And the Cardassians see the Bajorans sitting on this planet and, you know, they're, they're, the Cardassian technology is more advanced than Bajor's. And in, in Cardassia's eyes, in the eyes of a lot of the Cardassians, the Bajorans are stagnant and no longer evolving. They're complacent with their place and not wanting to expand or, and advance. And meanwhile, throughout all of this, Cardassia is going through this, this famine, right? There's many people starving. It's very resource poor. They keep getting different planets so that they can use their resources because Cardassia Prime doesn't have the resources they need. The military has taken over and it feels like fairly recently that the that Cardassia has kind of become a bit of a military dictatorship here. We have the civilian Datapa Council that's kind of in charge, but the military for all intents and purposes is really calling the shots. And the central religion of Cardassia, this Aurelian way, is really kind of becoming a niche kind of thing on the side and something that's being hated by the people that are in charge of Cardassia and they're looking to eliminate them. You know, all of this is kind of coming together for these two cultures to really clash and the disaster that unfolds afterwards is, is the result of kind of where these two societies are at this time. Yeah. Cause on Cardassia, they're in despair. I mean, everybody, it's not working. What, you know, whatever they had is, is, being destroyed it's just you know it's not a good place to be and so you know what used to be a more religious planet in society is now being shunned and i think it's because they're hoping to find 
what's wrong and fix it. And, and because something is broke, then that's the problem and that's the problem or whatever. And so the military just starts to build and build to try to correct the problem. And there's Bajor, like you're saying, they've been technically technologically advanced longer before earth and Cardassia, but they haven't really done that much with it because they didn't feel they need to. They were almost like this haven of like, well, we have our resources. We like, like, why do we have to go further? Why do we have to go beyond? We're, we're fine right here where we are. It's like, I live here. Why do I have to go somewhere else? I, I have no desire to leave my hometown. <laughs> you know, it's like that. And then here comes these people who are just like, hey, it sucks where we live. You guys have a nice place. Maybe we can learn from you. Maybe we can hang out with you. We can all be buddies and buddies and chums and all this stuff. And well, it's not always that way because the, some of these Cardassians have their own motivations because that despair again comes in of, I don't want to live like this again. So I have to take over. I have to be stronger. I have to be in control because if I'm in control, then I'm in control of preventing hardships from happening to us again. And I love how that aspect of their societies, both the Bajorans and the Cardassians, are illustrated in this novel. Like when the Cardassians first arrive on Bajor, there's this big feast and the Cardassians are brought to this feast and they're kind of going like, what is all this food? And they realize that like, there's too much food here for everyone to eat. Some of it's going to get thrown out. I can't imagine what that's possibly like and there's a few moments where and especially through the character of Ducat he's looking at this meal going like I'm just going to absolutely gorge myself on this <laughs> and you know that he's not it's not just the meal he's they're talking about there it's Bajor itself Cardassians are going to come to this planet and see the riches of it and gorge themselves on it. And that that kind of chilling moment of dramatic irony where, again, the reader knows what's going to come and the, the people in the novel don't is just, that's a chilling moment to me that really sent shivers up my spine. Yeah, I remember when that took place and when we were introduced to Ducat, I kept wondering in the beginning, is this the Ducat that we know? Or is this like his father? Is this a relative? Like I wasn't even sure at first if it was the Ducat, which it is. Mm -hmm. Because I wasn't that familiar with the name, his first name in this book, which I don't recall what it is at the top of my head right now. But I did that. That is one time I did go to Memory Alpha. Mm. And I noticed we had an initial there. So I guess his first name was never mentioned in the show. Never mentioned in the show. I think in uh, in he gives like a, a captain's log, basically, when they take over Terok Nor, Deep Space Nine in season six. And it's like S.G. Ducat or something like that. Yes. But he was given the name Scrain, I believe, in the post uh, finale novels, the the Deep Space Nine relaunch, I think is when they gave him his name. I could be wrong about that. But I do remember just a little side note back in the day when Deep Space Nine was on the air, there was writers from the show answering questions online on like the, the message boards and stuff on the Internet. And somebody had asked, what's Ducat's first name? And I think it was might have been Ronald, Ronald D. Moore who said it's Elmo. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I would have loved that. <laughs> yeah, I kind of I don't know. I kind of, I'm kind of almost sad they didn't go with that, but. At the same time, that would have been so distracting. <laughs> 
So James, because his initial begins with an S, you should have called him Sheaves. Like Sheaves Palpatine. Interesting. <laughs> no one seemed to like that one when that came out. <laughs> Ducat in this novel is just like, we see his progression as well. Because he's a young officer at the beginning. He's first officer under Gull Kel, who we'll talk a little bit about as well. But, you know, over the course of the novel, we see that he has ideas for Bajor. He thinks he knows the Bajoran people. And a lot of that stems from this, like, 10-minute conversation he had with Dara Mace outside of this feast we talked about. From that, he kind of feels like he figures out what drives Bajorans. And for him, it's that Bajorans hold grudges and they they remember and Ducat's like, I can use that. Over the course of the novel, he really starts to become the Ducat that we see in the series. I, I didn't remember exactly how his story played out in this. And I seem to remember, and I might be remembering something from a, a later novel or something, but I, I thought that like he took his place as the prefect of Bajor by the end of this novel, but he doesn't. He gets kind of sent back to Cardassia, but he basically says... I'll be back. Like I will set ba- foot on Bajor once again. And we all know that's true. <laughs> it's, it's again, very chilling. It started to get really chilling and interesting as that character developed through this novel, which really that ending that you mentioned there made me think, okay, I can't wait to see Ducat be Ducat. I mean, he is here towards the end of the book, but really, really get to that place of power i'm curious to see how that plays out Mm -hmm. and again it's it's he's gorging himself right on bajor he sees the the prize and he can't help but just desire it and crave it and oh he's such a a slimy character (laughs) and he's so annoyed by the other cardassians you know he just thinks he's all that he's got it all figured out and they don't and he's maybe playing their game for now but that's only to entertain himself, to further himself also, and just use them. And they don't really realize what's going on because they're just too stupid to know that they're being played. Yeah, for sure. And well, one of them that definitely falls into that category is Kel, who's a gull at the start of this novel. And by the end, he's he's a higher rank, a Jagull. I'm not sure if that's the pronunciation, but he's Ducat's commanding officer on the ship at the beginning. And then he kind of becomes in charge of the Cardassian presence on Bajor. We did see him briefly as a recording in the third season Deep Space Nine episode, Civil Defense. And for people listening, you might remember that episode as the one where Cisco, O'Brien, and Jake get trapped below decks and the computer thinks there's a Bajoran worker riot in progress and it locks down the station and these recordings of Ducat keep coming up. And uh, Ducat eventually comes onto the station to, you know, ostensibly help them out. But he's like, nah, I'm just going to leave you guys to stew for a while. And he tries to beam away. And then the recording of Gull, of Legate Kel comes up and says, Ducat, I knew you'd try to abandon your post. Here's your punishment. Your command codes are locked out and you're stuck there too. Ha ha ha. And uh, so that's, that's what we see of him. But uh, there's, you know... A minor character that I'm glad they used here because it shows that he has history with Ducat and why he would do that to Ducat later. That makes sense. Right. Now now we know from the from this book, we know why he said what he said in that episode. <laughs> and I find that happening a lot 
too. Like the episodes obviously don't have the full backstory or anything like that written, but this novel has done such a good job of filling in some of that backstory to make that all make sense or to make it make even more sense. Uh, the, the history between Kotan Padar and Dukat, for example, and uh, just little things like that. I love that this novel can connect those dots so nicely that we go like, oh, that's obviously how it was always meant to play out. That makes perfect sense. And, you know, I know the novels aren't canon, but that's why they feel almost like canon to me, because those are the answers you're never going to get. I mean, more than likely never get that on screen. And it does tie everything together. And all of a sudden it enriches what you're watching. I mean, even though maybe that's not the true story behind what happened in the past, but there is no true story because it was never developed. So this is it. Right. And so it just always enriches everything. Star Trek, when you you know read the novels and the comics and the episodes and everything, they all play off of each other so well. And I love it when you watch something and there's just a minor character and you look at that character now and you think, I know this whole history of that character, you know, Mm. and you just, as you're watching the episode, you're watching it maybe a little differently because you know why that character just did or said what they just did. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's totally the feeling I get from this novel. And when I watch those deep space and when I do my next binge watching of the entire series, you know, I'll be remembering all these little pieces and stuff. Now, how many binge watches have you done of deep space nine? Oh, I have no idea. I wouldn't even want to venture a guess. Really? Like a lot of them? <laughs> Probably. I it's, it's one that like when I ha- and encounter a new friend that I get really close with or something like that, and they mentioned that, oh, yeah, they like Star Trek. Well, oh, no, I never really watched Deep Space Nine. I'm like, okay. And we put on Emissary and we watch it. <laughs> Dang. See, I need to do that. Every time I start binge, I get off track and I start jumping ahead to stuff because of a novel and what. I have never watched Deep Space Nine from the first episode all the way to the last, except for the original airings. Oh, wow. It's it's a must do. Like, it, it just it holds together. It's such a good series. Oh, man. Yeah, I haven't done that. I haven't even done that with TNG, TOS, Voyager, <laughs> ever since the original. Well, I didn't see TOS in the original airing, but all the others I did, I've never done a binge watch of those like that. And I really want to. <laughs> yeah. Deep. Sp- I, I highly suggest Deep Space Nine really works well for that that sort of thing. I started like like a couple years ago, I got through, I think the first season and half of the second. And again, just got diverted off into something else. Now, like most of Star Trek, this is a little tangent here though. I will say that if you watch Deep Space Nine from be- beginning to end, like all of Star Trek, they're kind of, they're making it up as they go along. Right. So here years afterwards, it feels like a complete story that makes coherent sense. And especially with these novels just like slotted in front it feels like the story that was always meant to be told but if you watch the first season just as an example the episode babel where they have the aphasia virus that was programmed in and makes everybody talk funny they say that like oh it looks like it was programmed in 18 years ago and they say well that was about the time the station was being built and you're like wait Later on in Deep Space Nine we find out that that station's like 40 years old like what what Whoa. so yeah, there's little things like that that you'll you'll notice. But, well, the station uh, was it was going through a refit 18 years. Sure. Later. They just said it was being <laughs> built. 
And Admiral Morrow is the one who said that because he thought the Enterprise was 20 years old. <laughs> yep. More like 50 in that movie. But anyway. <laughs> well, yeah. So we've got the Cardassians on Bajor and they're they're making inroads and, you know, nothing overtly military or anything yet. They're just kind of doing trade deals and all this kind of stuff. But we start getting hints that and, and directly seeing kind of what's happening behind the scenes where, you know, they're beaming equipment into uh, hidden bases and all this sort of stuff. So it's clear they're, they're planning something big, but Kel is moving much too slowly, at least according to Ducat and Ducat is kind of much more ambitious and decides that, you know, things need to be moved up and stuff. So most of the stuff we've seen is, is 10 years before the start of the occupation, we get a time jump partway through the novel where it jumps to five years before. And this is where a lot of the stuff starts being really set in motion. One of the things that the Cardassians say that they're at Bajor for is to help protect them from the Zenkethi, who are this aggressive species, and they're going to protect Bajor from them. But there's this whole situation that they basically engineer, this bombing of this space station in orbit around Bajor, and they blame the Zenkethi, but we, of course, find out that it was actually, actually the Obsidian Order who did this. And this sets in motion this whole false flag incident where they, they use a Zenkethi cruiser to attack Bajor after it wipes out a, a Bajoran fleet and the Cardassians finish them off and all of this stuff. And of course it's all led by Ducat. He's at the helm of all of this. So what did you think of that idea that Ducat had such like a, a hands-on approach to really manipulating and engineering the start of the occupation? Well, I liked it because it seemed like something Ducat would do to get to where he needs to go. And this is his early times, right? He's not the commander. He's not the leader of really anything yet. And using the Zenkethi, I thought was brilliant. Reading a bunch of novels recently, you know, they keep using Zenkethi a lot and they're still very mysterious in a lot of ways. So, and the fact that the Zenkethi are like, I don't know what the Bajorans and the Cardassians are talking about. We haven't done anything. We don't know what's going on over there, you know, which makes them suspicious, which also made the Federation, they got suspicious too about what's mm -hmm. been happening over here. I like how Ducat is pulling the strings. It's that's what makes this great. Yeah, and I love how he justifies it to himself as well, right? We we see inside his mind and he's he honestly thinks like any great villain does that they're the hero, that they're doing the right thing, right? Because he says what I'm doing I'm not just doing for Cardassia. I'm doing it for Bajor as well. One day they will thank me for what I've done to to allow them to come under the protection of Cardassia. And, you know, these, these Bajoran children will appreciate all that I'm doing for them. And, you know, that's definitely a, a, a little bit of a preview of what we see Ducat in Deep Space Nine is like, right? So it's it's so creepy how he's able to justify these horrific actions where millions of Bajorans are killed. Yeah, because he's he had a troubled childhood. He didn't have, have a good childhood. He was the poor of the poor or whatever. And it's like he's getting his revenge. And I don't think he realizes maybe that he's going for revenge. You know, he's doing this all for himself. And because, you know, again, having the control 
that's what you need. And so I will not let what happened to me happen to anybody else that's a Cardassian or anybody else in my family. And I don't want to see anybody else go through that. And I'll use the Bajorans if I need to, because life isn't fair and they seem to be all happy and life is fair, but they're going to realize that life isn't fair, but I'll take good care of them. But we all have to be in this together so that everybody is protected and I'll control the whole thing. And it's Mm -hmm. like, he just reasons it out in his mind because of what happened to him. And so this is the result of that. Again, it's that, that mission of, I don't want to get hurt. So I have to be in control of everything. Yeah. And this whole, this plan is so intricate and horrific what they do. First of all, killing the crews of the Zenkethi ships and the Bajoran ships, and then taking the Zenkethi cruiser to Bajor. And, you know, we have this list of targets that is going to really demoralize the Bajoran people, but also, you know, some targets on here that are going to help us out in our future plans as well. So let's, uh, let's destroy this, this city here. Let's destroy the Kendra shrine, the main, you know, seat of Bajoran religion, all this stuff that's going to further our goals. At this point, we're getting this kind of big picture political thing that's happening. But I also really appreciate when we go down to ground level and see what's happening from the perspective of the characters we're following. So like Dara Mace is seeing this, you know, beam hit the city in the distance and the shockwave expanding as the city he lives in is being destroyed. I was just, I was right there with him witnessing it it's so well written that that part there where it's just like you're there and it's so heartbreaking and demoralizing and such a huge hit to the pride of the Bajoran people they're broken after this Mm, they're broken now like Cardassia so hey all's fair now we're on equal playing ground here that's that's Mm -hmm. the temptation to make this happen so yeah, that's what it does. It it breaks the Bajoran people and they they feel like they have to throw their lot in with the Cardassians. The Cardassians are going to protect them and help them out. And it's pretty much unanimous in the Chamber of Ministers, except for Kiev Falor, who's like, I'm out of here. Like, this is crazy. No one's going to oppose this. You're just going to turn our planet over to Cardassia, basically. And that's when he leaves for Valo too, leaving behind one of his, you know, trusted people. And he swears the fight's not over, but, uh, this is a bad day for Bajor. And it's, it's one of those things that like when you're reading it, I had the same feeling reading this as I do when I'm reading the terms of the Treaty of Versailles after World War One or something like that, where I'm like, you're making decisions now and you have no idea what the fallout from this decision is going to be. And it seems like you're doing one thing. But what you're really doing is causing Hitler to rise to power over here. You know what I mean? Like it had that feeling of historical import that like, I bet you Bajorans study that moment in school and wish they could go back in time and tell their leaders what was going to happen. Yeah, because they were being manipulated. Again, the Zenkethi are the bad guys. They're the ones who are attacking. And it's like, of course, the Cardassians are here to help us and save us. Like, Bajor wanted to do it on their own, but they can't. So they need the help of the Cardassians. And in a lot of ways, you know, they're they're kind of our protectors now. And that's exactly what the Cardassians want. They want the Bajorans to think that they're protectors because now they're in control, right? And so, yeah, how 
little do they realize how much they're being used that they've already been conquered and they don't even know it. And yeah, we see that play out over the next five years. Basically, we kind of jump ahead again a little bit to right before the occupation when we get some new people arrive on the scene that we haven't seen before. These these two Bajoran women who aren't actually Bajoran women and we get our first little hint of Starfleet. We've gotten this whole novel without any Starfleet interference or, or any involvement or anything. And we get Lieutenant Alina Nechev and uh, another Starfleet intelligence analyst undercover as Bajorans to try and find evidence of what's going on. Are the Cardassians really taking over Bajor? What's happening there? They're there to gather intelligence. What did you think of this part of the novel? I, I It felt like a, a, a gear shift change in the book, but not an unwelcome one. Just, you know, just like interesting that we suddenly get these outsiders. It was a gear shift change, but I did enjoy this part of the book because you almost want to know, well, what is Starfleet doing at this time? Are they even aware of what's going on? So it makes sense that we have these agents here kind of spying and, gathering some information, but we've got that little nasty prime directive there that says they can't get involved because you'd think, well, why isn't Starfleet coming and helping these people out and rectifying the problem? It's because, well, we can't touch it. It's that prime directive thing. And so I felt like it was needed. Something was needed there to address what Starfleet was doing at this time and the Federation. Yeah, I appreciated that. And the on the ground experiences of these two as they one of Keith Fallor's men who is left behind there kind of gets them into this Cardassian compound and they see the evidence. They see all these tanks and weapons, basically an invading army sitting right under these compounds just outside all these cities, obviously that they're going to invade and, and they're ready to do so. And they barely manage to get off the planet and away. And then we find out that Starfleet has decided that they're not going to do anything. They can't do anything right now. Right. And we see the fallout from that in the TNG episode Ensign Row, right? Where the Bajorans are so mad at the Federation for not having done anything while the planet's been occupied for the last four decades. We see the beginnings of that here and, and it's it's heartbreaking. Yeah. And then think about what we get later in DS9 about, you know, with the Maquis and Starfleet again, just like signing a a deal with the Cardassians and it's just like, you know, Starfleet, I almost was going to say Starfleet and the Federation don't always do right, but they're also put in these situations where it's like, well, you're damned if you're, if you do and you're damned if you don't. Right. And it's like, they had this window, they had this small window that they could have maybe done something, but the occupation officially begins and Kubis Oak becomes the leader of Bajor, and he officially says that the Cardassians are there at the invitation of the Bajoran government and signs off on it all. And now Starfleet's hands are completely tied because the official government of Bajor has said they're okay with all of this. So Yeah, so what can they do, right? Yeah, they had like that that like twenty day window where they had the evidence of what was going to happen and then it actually happening and they something could have been done in that time, but yeah. nope. Nope. 
Dan, I don't want to get you frustrated. I can tell you really love this book. I really love this book. I got so into it. And I, I should say, obviously, it's a book that you know going in is not going to have a happy ending because it's the story of the Cardassian occupation and it's book one of three. (laughs) You know, going in, it's not going to be happy, but I still, by the end of this book, I'm just like, ah, I'm so frustrated. And which is exactly what you're supposed to feel at that moment. Right. Well, well, I appreciate the fact that this is your third time reading it because I do feel like it's worth a reread. It really is. It, It holds up very well on a reread for sure. One thing that struck me this time around and I'd kind of forgotten is this one character by the name of Ron Eco or Iko, who we see at the start of the novel. She's a Cardassian scientist, but over the course of the novel, we come to understand she's actually a spy for the Obsidian Order. I found it really interesting by the end, all of her plans, right? All of these many different seeds she's sown throughout Bajor that all kind of culminate on this one day to create all of this chaos. And it's, it's all this kind of stuff like paying security officer to look another, look the other way while something happens, inciting these people to commit acts of violence over here, causing this person to have an affair with somebody and causing their spouse to walk in at that moment. So that, you know, it just like all these little tiny ripple effects. And it just shows how insidious the obsidian order is and all of these plans like like Ducat's whole thing is just one tiny thread of this huge tapestry that that they've woven for Bajor and it's all been planned out in meticulous detail to lead to this occupation. I like how Ducat's working with her but not working with her. You know, mm-hmm. doesn't really want to but just using the opportunity and I thought She's definitely his foe. Like I, she's she's just as brilliant as he is. Maybe maybe even more. I don't know. I I just hope to see things come to real big blows between these two in the later books. And then of of course Gar Osen, this Vedic that we haven't talked a ton about, but we mentioned him a little bit at the beginning. At about halfway through the novel, there's an incident involving him, and he seems different after that. And he's, he was good friends with Dara Mace and was his priest and confidant and all this stuff. And then after a certain point, he just became aloof and distant. And by the end, we find out, oh, he's a, he's an undercover Obsidian Order agent now. (laughs) I'm just like, that was brutal. That was, that was really good. That took me by surprise. I really like that, but I'm glad we're coming to this now because I'm just remembering I wasn't sure, was he always a Cardassian agent or was he earlier the real guard that got killed and replaced? I got the impression yeah. he was replaced. He was replaced. They they pretty much, they, they go over kind of how it happened. There was that crash where that Cardassian takes him and they're flying and they crash. And they mention how the Cardassian was beamed out and then given surgery in those moments and beamed back so that he could be the rescued one and say, oh, the Cardassian perished. I remember that part. And I was thinking, how long did it take for them to find the crashed ship? Because it would take a long time for that surgery to occur. Yeah. Well, they, they said in the novel, like it, it took a few hours and they mentioned that the surgery was rushed, which is why it was kind of not holding up under the scans of that Cardassian. Mm. He said, oh yeah, the surgery was rushed. And I find that my DNA masking isn't isn't working as well as it should. And they said, okay, we'll take you back for longer treatments and, and we'll fix that. 
Yeah, I guess I just always figured that kind of surgery would be something that would take days <laughs> and according with, uh, with recovery and everything, because it's pretty extensive instead of just some hours. That's why I was like, really? That was that quick? You know, mm -hmm. but yeah, I guess that's what it is. But yeah, I would just think it would be longer than that. That's why I was like, wait a second. Is this, I don't, that was the one part where I wasn't sure if it really made a lot of sense to me. Yeah, no, fair enough. It was, it's a little convenient. That felt a little bit like, you know, James Bond movie ridiculousness or something, but you know, <laughs> right. that's what the Obsidian Order does, I guess. It reminded me of like Garrick type stuff. <laughs> yes. Hey, yeah. Garrick is not in this book. <laughs> nope he's not in this book well okay that just makes me think he'll be in another book <laughs> maybe maybe well other just last little things that i wanted to talk about the one thing that jumped out at me and i'd forgotten about this was the cardassians use the bajoran moon of derna as their their military base and i was thinking about the seventh season opening episodes of Deep Space Nine, where the Romulans want to put a base on Derna to treat their wounded. And Kira is so vehemently against them putting a base on Derna and how like you can't do, you cannot have a base on that moon in Bajoran space, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, this is just another one of those moments where something in here just ties so nicely to that, that like if the Cardassians, when they first came to Bajor, their first military base they set up was on the Bajoran moon of Derna. No wonder they're like the Romulans want to set up a base there. Oh, hell no. You know, like I, I love how well that fits that like historically that would just be like, Wow, this is reminding me of something. Nope, you definitely cannot put a military base there. Nice. See, I love that connection. Of course, I didn't pick up on that. That's good. Well, and, and then uh, one character we didn't really talk about was Saijin, who's another one of Dara's and Gar's childhood friends who kind of is this smuggler. And I really enjoyed his character. I thought he was a lot of fun and had a bit of a heroic death at the end as well, helping Dara smuggle out or attempt to smuggle out this uh, this flight recorder from the Bajoran ship that that Ducat's fleet wiped out. Yeah, he's kind of like the Barney Fife to Dara, who's Andy Taylor. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, just that because they were friends and they worked together. But then you know, little issues here and there. Well, anything we haven't talked about that you'd like to add? Oh, the only thing is that uh, we didn't talk about that you have here in the notes is uh, Mark Jameson and. David Gold. I did pick up on those. I knew who they were mm -hmm. in here. Of course, one from TNG and the other from the novels from the Corps of Engineers. So that that was cool too. Those seeing those characters there. Yeah, I appreciate bringing in those little aspects of the wider novel verse as well. And and you know this character from TNG. It makes sense that he's there. That makes sense. That's all I have. I don't know. I can't think of anything else. We covered a lot. I just I really did enjoy this. Again, as I was reading this, I thought a casual Star Trek fan, I don't know if they would if this is something they would want to read, but even if you're not familiar with Deep Space Nine, this is an interesting story. And it can just show you what happens when you have two planets dealing with each other and it doesn't always go as as peaceful as you want it to be. I love the aspect of like we were saying the good and bad is on both sides. There's the innocent and those who are not. And that's on both Cardassians and the Bajorans themselves and the whole religious aspect of stuff and the twist with Gar 
definitely was something I did not see coming. So I would say that I would give this book four out of five orbs of books. Nice. Yeah. That's uh, that's actually something we didn't talk a lot about is this ultimate goal of the Obsidian Order to get the Bajoran orbs as yes. well, which, you know, that's something we find out in the first episode of Deep Space Nine, that the Bajor had nine orbs and the Cardassians took most of them. So this seems to be this this undercurrent that like that's the ultimate goal. And ooh, why? Interesting. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool. But yeah, I really enjoy this novel, as I'm sure you can tell. I just love that we got into such a deep discussion of it because there's so much going on in here. I do remember of this trilogy, this one being my favorite of them. And James Swallow just, I think, really knocks it out of the park with this novel. Uh, so I'm going to give it, I'm I'm going to say, a very rare five out of five trips through the Denorius belt where you can catch a tachyon eddy and go to warp for a few seconds. Well, we'd love to hear from our listeners who might have read this novel as well. What did you think about it? Let us know. PositivelyTrek at gmail.com. You can also reach out to us on Twitter at PositivelyTrek or in the Positively Trek discussion group on Facebook. Just search for Positively Trek discussion group. We will let you right in. Bruce, where can people talk to you about Preoccupation Bajor? You can find me on Twitter at Admiral underscore Rex. That's Admiral with the underline Rex. And you can also find me on Facebook. I'm floating out there. We have our group, our discussion group on Facebook, so you can join us there. We also have a Goodreads group. I'm there too. And I've been doing some stuff occasionally on Literary Tracks and on the Star Wars Report podcast. And our next episode of the book club is not a book, but it's an audio drama of No Man's Land. So yeah, tune in for that. Yeah, really looking forward to that. I think we'll have a couple of special guests on for that one as well. So you don't want to miss that episode. Star Trek Picard, No Man's Land, the audio drama starring Michelle Hurd and Jerry Ryan. So uh, check that out once it comes out if you haven't listened to that. And uh, we'll spoil the crap out of it on the next book club episode. (laughs) So thank you all so much for listening this week. We will see you in the next episode. Until then. As always, stay positive. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.